Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Oh, it's her tell show. It's Monday, folks. I know you're excited about it. Thrilled to have you back with us. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Hope you had a great weekend with you and yours, wherever you are across the street or around the world. Got a lot to cover today. Uh, excited about it. Going to turn down the noise of the news cycle on a couple different things. Uh, the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Kentonji Brown Jackson. Those start today, and a lot of people want to litigate every other justice that's ever gone through and not Judge Jackson. We'll touch on that in a little bit. Uh, also, have you heard about these floods in Australia? They are terrible. They are awful, and they're also not getting a whole lot of play. Why do we care about that? Uh, because they're not getting the charity help from folks like the Red Cross that they think they ought to be happening. That's something that's happened right here at home. In fact, it happened to my home, literally my home, the house I grew up in. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the program. Also, we always try to end on a good note. Great story. Some folks that own an art gallery decided to try to teach some kids how to draw. They set up a nonprofit and then the pandemic hit. But they come to find out that they put it online and now it's nationwide and even worldwide. They got even more reach than they thought. Great story out of Miami. We'll end the show with that. Also on the program today, a great guest, John Deeth. A lot of headlines and story. Washington Post had a front page issue. The Democratic Party are trying to get rid of the Iowa caucuses ahead of 2024. We're going to go out to Iowa and talk to him like we've been doing with all these other states uh, in this election year. Iowa politics, the Iowa caucuses. John Deeth, he's a Democratic uh, election official out there. He's been intimately involved in the Democratic side of the caucuses for almost 20 years, knows everything about it, and even he's fed up with it. So we'll get the straight story from him. We're going to turn down the noise on the Iowa caucuses, what went right and wrong in 2020, what the future is, how this is going to go, what's realistically going to change between now and 2024, which is already upon us. Uh, John Deeth on the program today. Great guest, great information. Excited to talk to him. Uh, but first, let's go to Ukraine and Russia and Vladimir Putin's war against the Ukrainian people for daring to not be under his spell and under his control as the new imperial Russia. Uh, folks, I hate to keep harping on this and I hate to repeat myself, but we must. Back during World War II, uh, Eisenhower opened up the concentration camps and gave orders that every serviceman within shouting distance, within travel distance, had to go through the camps. And he said, you have to do this because there's going to come a day when people won't believe that this actually happened. Well, what's going on in Ukraine is not quite the Holocaust. That's a singularly horrible event in the world. But what's happening in Ukraine is also the Russian government, Vladimir Putin's propaganda machine, is openly saying what we are all seeing happening is not happening. Their foreign minister, actually came, spokesperson, came out on television and said, we do not bomb cities and civilians. 
but we know they are. We're seeing it with our own eyes, but people are saying it's not happening. The reason we're going to keep harping on Ukraine is because this is the current evil of our day. Cities are being leveled. There are now UN reports that something around 900 civilians in Ukraine are now dead at least. There's 10 million refugees on the move trying to escape this war. We're going to keep harping on it because when you're dealing with something that's evil, that there's not a lot of nuance to how evil it is, you need to call it evil because there will be people who don't want to call it evil. They'll want to call it other things. There is never an excuse to murdering civilians. There's never an excuse to leveling cities. There's never an excuse for a blatant war of aggression simply for conquest and power, which is all the move into Ukraine is. Vladimir Putin has coveted Ukraine for years and years and years because he wants to put together a Russian empire, not just the Soviet Union that he came out of as a KGB official, but go back even further than that, the Russian empire that dominated Europe in world events, at least in their own mind. It was never as great as they think it was. All these former satellite states that have found freedom, economic freedom, cultural freedom, freedom from Russian interference and influence that grates at him. He can't allow that. He's a strong man and a dictator. All of them should be under his guise. And he won't stop stop with Ukraine. He didn't stop with Georgia. He didn't stop with Chechnya. He didn't stop with Crimea the first time he invaded Ukraine. And they've been fighting in Ukraine through the separatist regions ever since he did that. He also helped destroy Syria, leveling entire cities, thousands upon thousands of people killed. Cities like Aleppo reduced to rubble. We know what this is about, and it's not about anything good. It's about an evil man with evil intentions who has poisoned the minds of his own people with evil that they can go and destroy another country, and he'll say that he's the righteous ones. That's why he talks about things like denazification, like Ukraine is full of Nazis. No, they're not. There may be some Nazis in Ukraine like there aren't anywhere, but that's not what he's doing. He's not bombing theaters full of people because of Nazis. He's doing it to cow the Ukrainian people. And it's not working. The Ukrainians are getting stronger by the day and they're resolved to fight back. They're paying a fearsome price for it, but they're going to resist. Vladimir Putin is not going to win in Ukraine. And we should be doing our part by telling the truth about the evil and wickedness that he has perpetrated upon the world. It's going to cause economic destruction. We don't even know yet, but Ukraine is the breadbasket of not only Europe, but a lot of other places like Africa. The interruption in grain shortages is already projected to cause famine in Africa. Many more thousands of people are going to die because of what Vladimir Putin did. And it's not going to make the TV because there's not bombs and the visuals involved. The people in Africa and Asia and other places that depend on that food supply are going to suffer greatly because of this. The world economy has to suffer. Everybody's going to suffer. And the Ukrainian people are going to suffer most of all. So let's just call it what it is. It's evil. It's wrong. No more of this nonsense about how Ukraine had it come under the West perpetuated it. There was some truth to some of that in a geopolitical sense. But once Vladimir Putin pulled the trigger on a full-blown invasion, once he decided to conquer, kill, and destroy, those arguments all have to be set aside until after the killing is done and after peace has been brought back. The peace is going to be paid for by the Ukrainian people because we didn't do very much to support them. But let's never not be clear-eyed about what happened here. This was a purposeful decision by an evil man for evil gains. Anybody telling you anything else is lying to themselves and is lying to you. More Hurtel right after this. I 
Oh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay. Uh, Kentanji Brown Jackson, the Supreme Court nomination for President Biden. The confirmation hearings start today, Monday, the 21st of March. Um, we do grown folk uh, discussions here. So let's just have some grown folk talk real quick. How you conduct yourself on social media and how you discuss issues like Supreme Court nominations is entirely up to you. You're responsible for what you smash send on. You're responsible for what you post. You're responsible for how you react to things. So I'm going to go over this real slow because this will probably upset some people, but that's okay. With Judge uh, Jackson's hearing, she is Judge Jackson. She is not Justice Kavanaugh. She is not Justice Amy Comey Barrett. She's not any other justice that came before. There's going to be a big temptation, and a lot of people have already given into it because I read my Twitter feed like everybody else does that they're going to relitigate Kavanaugh's hearings and they're going to relitigate the things that were said about Amy Comey Barrett. And then they'll bring up some other things in the past. There's already this thing going around on some of our friends on the right that, well, because of everything that happened during the Kavanaugh hearings, we can say whatever we want. We can bring up whatever we want. We can behave any way we want in the Judge Jackson hearings. No, you can't. You can, but it's going to be very transparent what you're doing. If your argument is that the people that you say you can't stand and you say did great wrong and you say did things that were not right, and that gives you an excuse to turn around and do other things that aren't good and other things that aren't right and to lose your own bearing, what does that really say about you? It doesn't say that you're being a good faith discussion or discourse or discussing the merits of Judge Jackson. Now, there's plenty of things in her record. If you want to discuss them, we can but if you're just having some kind of vendetta ride because of what came before, then you're being reactionary and you're not putting truth and justice and the better good of the country foremost. You're putting what happened before foremost and you're letting other people dictate to you how you're conducting yourself. That doesn't tell me anything about Kintanji Brown Jackson. Tells me a lot about you, though. Why don't we do this? I know it's hard. I know it's not popular. I know it won't get you a whole lot of clicks. It won't make your certain circles happy with you, but just take the hearings as they come. They're going to be political because I'm telling you from working on Ordinary-Times.com, like I did, the biggest story we have ever covered, bigger than 2020's election, bigger than January 6th, bigger than anything in the four years I've been there, was the Kavanaugh hearings. It got the most traffic, the most engagement, the most discussion. It was the Kavanaugh hearings. It just fires people up. There's a lot of people that want to do that with these hearings because it makes copy. It makes press. It makes them feel good. They like those kind of fights. Uh, they won't have to talk about Ukraine again. They won't have to talk about the economy. We can all fight over this. You want to resist that. She's going to sit on the Supreme Court of the United States. We need to examine her judicial record and her temperament on the bench, which is all public, by the way. You can read every opinion that she signed. It's all on the Internet. Just take some time and read it. But don't get trapped into this thing where we're going to relitigate social media wars of the past just because it makes for good effort. It's gerbil on the wheel kind of stuff. You're going to do a lot of exerted effort, but you're not going to actually accomplish anything. She's still going to get confirmed. And you're not going to redo anything that happened in the past. But you could lose your bearing, and you could hurt your own reputation, and you could tell people things about yourself that you may not want them to know about, or at least things that you should work on in private and not out on main on your social media accounts. Take Judge Jackson at her word. Take her at her record. Examine it thoroughly. We should be strict on who we let on the Supreme Court. Understand the circumstances that are going on, though. 
understand that she is going to be confirmed because elections have consequences and we have a Democratic president and he's going to put a progressive judge on the Supreme Court. That's how that works. But she's also in the mainstream of what progressives on the court are. Her record tells us what we need to know about her. And if you're going to go off Internet about it, maybe take a second, read the record and at least know what you're talking about when you do so. She's not Justice Kavanaugh. She's not Justice Amy Comey Barrett. And she's not Justice whoever else you want to bring up. She's Judge Jackson. And as we go through the process to make her a justice, you need to treat her fairly, whether you like it or not. More her tell right after this. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, you know what we're doing. It's an election year. We've been going to various states. Let's go out to Iowa, which has dual importance because they've got themselves a Senate race this year. But we all know the Iowa caucuses and Iowa kicks off the presidential cycles. It's very important because that's how people plan their presidential campaigns. We called out an expert, got our friend uh, Guinea Coulter reached out, said this is the man to talk to. And here he is. He's an election official. He's been working at the county level for a long time. He's also a Democratic Party official. He has been doing caucuses for 18 years. He knows them inside and out. He also knows the primary system. Perfect guy to talk to. John Deeth, thank you so much for the time, sir. Thanks for having me. Uh, thrilled that you're here to explain this to me like I'm five, because I've been trying to cover politics for a couple of years now, and I still haven't quite figured out Iowa. So let's just cut to it. What in a perfect world, before we start bashing it and talk about everybody's problems with it and all that, in a perfect world, what was the caucuses supposed to be that they became kind of this revered thing in tradition? Well, a caucus is simply just a meeting of the party activists within a given area, such as a precinct. And I always had caucuses for a very, very, very long time. It wasn't until the early 70s that they started to take on a national importance. The uh, uh, McGovern Commission that reformed the uh, nomination process after the 1968 convention set a whole bunch of new rules around caucuses. There had to be a certain amount of uh, lead time for notice. Uh, They had to be in public locations and things like that. And so Iowa jumped in front of the New Hampshire primary kind of by accident because of the meeting notice times and because of the limits of 1970s photocopying technology. They were, you know, think purple ditto masters. And so Jimmy Carter realized Iowa was before New Hampshire, uh, made an extra effort here. We have people uh, in my county who still brag that Jimmy Carter slept on their couch, and that launched him to the White House. And so that started the Iowa caucuses as a mass event as we know them. Uh, The issue that's been a problem from my perspective as a local activist uh, since about the 2004 cycle is that the caucuses have grown beyond the uh, meeting of of the core party activists, and they become a mass participation event, which you would think that's good, having more people participating in the process. The problem is that the rules are still set up for 20 people in a living room, and now it's more like 300, 500, up to over 900 people in a voting precinct uh, crammed into a gymnasium or an auditorium, still working, with rules that were designed for 20 people. And you can't organize your party in a mob of 900 people, most of whom simply want to vote for president and go home. All you can really do is the crowd control and the anger management. And that hasn't been going as well. The optics were just horrible. You have a lot of cases, there are school gyms, uh, places like churches in a lot of these cases. 
and they're just absolutely overflowing. We saw the optics of 2020 where you have, you know, you'd have a church building, you'd have the auditorium and then the whole outside of the church. And then you have the line outside and they're trying to take TVs out there. Optically, it looked like chaos on the ground. Was it chaos? Was that an accurate depiction or was it just people trying to make the best of a bad decision and it just looked way worse than it was? I think... First of all, I don't want to throw the local volunteers under the bus. They do the best that they can uh, with an impossible situation. The problem is that enough rooms that are big enough just don't exist. Once you get above about the size of a grade school gym that'll hold maybe 200 people, spaces are few and far between. The average Iowa caucus score went to a caucus of 191 people, which has got that gym already pretty full. Uh, In my county, Johnson County, which is the most democratic in the state, more than half our precincts were over 300 people. Uh, And the more new people that get involved who aren't familiar with the rules and the folkways, the more confusion there is and the more, frankly, anger that there is. They don't understand why they have to stand around and wait so long when all they want to do is vote and go home. One of the complicating things is that the Republicans have a completely different set of rules uh, that really pretty much are vote and go home. But the Democrats, everything in Democratic nomination politics is centered around proportional representation, which is why you're grouping into groups that have to add up to more than 15% of the room and you have the realignment periods and things like that. But a lot of people just aren't interested in those things. They want to cast their ballot, have their vote for president recorded, and then go home and you know have an evening. Yeah. Talking to John Deeth out in Iowa. Um, let's start there though. 2020, the obvious thing happened is By the time they figured out who won the Iowa caucuses, we were already on to the next state. Actually, we were already basically in the South Carolina by the time they got that sorted out. That's just not viable when these campaigns. I bet you you could tell me right now which presidential candidates for 2024 are already starting to set up shop in Iowa, can't you? Like they put so much time and effort into this. It's just it's becoming a return on investment issue because the winners aren't really translating to the greater race. Plus the chaos involved, this this seems like it's kind of in a bit of a death spiral, at least optically and nationally. Is that how it feels to you? Yeah, we, uh, we've we kind of had three strikes you're out with the uh, results. Uh, it's just sheer bad luck that Iowa's had three ties in a row, uh, first in 2012 on the Republican side, and then in 16 and 20 on the Democratic side. And caucuses were never set up to have the kind of precise, instant results Uh, that a state-run election does. Uh, It's not about how many people voted for so-and-so. A caucus is really about electing delegates to a next level of convention. And so instead of using uh, the infrastructure of the 99 county election offices, which is one of which is where I work my day job, they are relying on an all-volunteer network of people who are trying to report into a state party. And that uh, was the recipe for disaster as we uh, as we found out in 2020 on the Democratic side. Is it funny? I guess it's irony though. Is you talk about the way the the caucuses became national because of the limitations of photocopying and ditto machines. That's the purple ink stuff for people like me old enough to remember it from. Mm-hmm. And as I say that, lots of us can smell that instantly from our school days. That that was limiting. That what got it is it kind of a little bit of an irony that the new technology, the limitations of that, is the thing that might actually finally kill off the Iowa caucuses, at least in their traditional form. 
Well, there's a number of things that are combining to kill off the Iowa caucuses. And I recently uh, told my county party that I'm not going to organize them anymore. Uh, I don't mind hard work, but I mind futile work. And I felt like I was enabling a process that just isn't right. Uh, the uh, the results reporting process was the biggest meltdown in uh, in 2020. I think the precinct volunteers did the best they could managing the crowds, although there were you know sharp tempers because you're, you're in a highly contested, highly competitive race. Uh, but people did the best they could, but then they couldn't uh, they couldn't report the results. Depending upon who you believe, that was either the Iowa Democratic Party's fault or the DNC's fault. Uh, I'm not going to go into the blame there. But the thing is, Iowa's already got an infrastructure of 99 election offices staffed by uh, professionals who know how to count votes and report election results. And yet we're not using that. We're relying on a network of, uh, of volunteers. And that just isn't uh, that's just not cutting it in the 21st century. Yeah, John Deeth out in Iowa joining us. Uh, we know there's a lot of pride involved. Uh, there's a lot of uh, inter, I don't know how you want to call it, but interstate rivalry with New Hampshire about who gets to go first. That's oh, yeah. on the national level. <laughs> yeah, that's on the national level, though. The people that actually have to do these elections, the volunteers, the professional poll workers, where are they at it? Because they're the ones that are really carrying the burden here. Are they ready for a changeover to a primary system, even despite the national? I mean, I know nobody wants to give up their power and prestige, but are the workers like, OK, this has got to change. Y'all killing us. Well, there's really two separate questions going on with Iowa right now. Caucuses versus primary and first in the nation. And I've been focused on caucuses as a system because I'm not going to you know, stand here and argue my state shouldn't be first. Of course, that's kind of fun. But uh, there are a lot of the rank and file activists like themselves who are starting to stand up and say, first can no longer be an excuse for a bad process. Uh, the, we haven't even touched on it yet, but one of the biggest problems with the caucus is that you have to be in person, uh, physically present to participate. There's no real absentee process. You can't request a mail ballot and voted at home in secrecy, you have to be at a meeting. And even our attempt at uh, including people who couldn't attend, which was satellite caucuses, you were still looking at having to be at a specific place at a specific time. Uh, my wife missed two caucuses in 2008. The boys were too little to go. And in 2016, she got hit with mandatory overtime at work. So she didn't get to participate until 2020. Good grief. Uh, John Deeth out in Iowa. One more thing on the caucuses. Just to wrap it up, uh, the National Party is obviously making some pushes for change. They bring up things like Iowa's diversity. They bring up things like the antiquated caucus. Do you think the first in the nation in the caucus is combined? Can they be bifurcated where you get one or not the other? And which one would you prefer? How do you see this playing out between now and 2020? Because they basically got to the end of this year. They're going to have to make a decision here one way or the other. So what do you think it's going to play out? It's hard to say. One of the biggest factors in how Iowa has set up its rules has been this kind of trying to read the tea leaves of Bill Gardner, the New Hampshire Secretary of State, who recently retired. And we didn't want to do anything that upset him that might make him move New Hampshire in front of Iowa. 
the other the other issue is that Iowa's Republicans, who are in full control of the state government and likely will be for the near future, are not interested in changing anything about their processes. The Democrats cannot unilaterally enact a primary without a change in state law, and the Republicans don't want to change state law. So what I'm focused on right now is reforms that the Iowa Democratic Party can do that can make the caucuses something closer to a primary election. Now, I understand Iowa, there's this, oh, we're too old, we're too white, we're not diverse enough. My only argument to that, and again, I'm not against my state going first, is Iowa is full of the kind of voters that the Democratic Pact, if we're ever going to build a comfortable margin in national elections, if we're ever going to keep control of the Senate, uh, we're going to have to win back rural voters. But first, and the caucuses are separate questions, my priority is dealing with the caucus process. A bad process can't be an excuse anymore just because we want to stay first. Yeah, it's a good point because if the process is bad, it really doesn't matter if you're first, second, or 50th, does it? Exactly. If you can't go because you had mandatory overtime, what good is being first? Yeah. Talking to John Deeth out in Iowa, uh, we're going to take a quick break on Herd When we come back, we're going to get into a little bit of Iowa politics, past and future. They got themselves a Senate out race out there that we're going to have to pay a little bit of attention. More with John Deeth right after this on Herd Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking to our buddy John Deeth out in Iowa, which is more than just cornfields. They do elections and such out there as well. John, let me ask you something. Something that has been in Iowa's recent political history, I think might have some bearing on a national story now. Granted, it's on the Republican side, and that's not your side, but you're there on the ground. You talk to these folks. There's I been talk a lot of Yeah, you know, it's okay to talk to each other. Never hurt anybody. But that's the point here. We have on the Republican side some really problematic Congress people. People are debating what to do. Y'all had this not too long ago. You had Steve King. Uh, he got heavily censored. He got his committee stripped, and then he lost his primary after being, you know, basically ostracized from the party. That wasn't that long ago, two, three years ago. Uh, you went through that process as a state. I don't understand why we're not doing that with this current rash of really problematic congressmen, but it can be done. And Iowa showed that it can be done. Well, it was fascinating that primary because uh, the, the really the groundwork for defeating Steve King was laid in 2018 by J.D. Shulton, who was a Democrat who came within a couple of points of winning that very, very deep red district. And after that happened, the Republican leadership in the state was actually concerned that with high presidential turnout, King could actually lose to a Democrat. And so they got together and they got behind uh, Randy Feenstra, who eventually defeated King in the primary. Uh, Shulton ran again, uh, didn't do nearly as well against the less toxic opponent. But now Shulton just announced for a state legislative seat. And uh, he's an exciting young rural leader who uh, is going places in Iowa. Uh, it's just an example of because I'm always getting pushback. I'm like, just expel these people. Look, it's a two thirds threshold to do that. You're not going to do that willy nilly. I, I don't buy right. that argument. So but I'm just I'm just kind of bumfuzzled because I'm like, they just did it to Steve King and his stuff was horrible and awful. But I, you could argue some of this stuff's even worse. It's not like this is out of the realm of possibility. I, I just kind of fun. I wanted to ask you because Iowa managed to rid themselves of a, somebody that was embarrassing the state, for lack of a better way to phrase it. And I think there's an example there of what to do going forward with some of these Marjorie Taylor Greene type people. The whole key is uh, it's if you become an embarrassment to the party, that's not enough. But if you run the risk of losing to a Democrat, uh, then the Republican Party will unite to try to get rid of you. 
And that's what happened to Steve King. And now Randy Feenstra, the new congressman, nearly as conservative as King, but he's a little bit more housebroken. He doesn't retweet neo-Nazis. He's just more of a garden variety, quiet conservative. And uh, as of tomorrow, the filing deadline, he may be unopposed. Wow. That's um, he's going to be unopposed in a seat that was came close a few years ago. Yeah, that came within about two points in 2018. And that's a sad commentary on the status of the Iowa Democratic Party. But it is a very, very tough seat. The thing about Iowa is that on a state level, it's very difficult to win because the western part of the state is so red. But because of our clean districting system, uh, we have three congressional districts out of our four that are actually quite competitive. Talking to John Deeth. Okay, uh, let's talk about the man who has unquestionably mastered getting a statewide race done, Chuck Grassley. Uh, he is, I guess, an institution would be the only way. Long-standing family in Iowa. Um, he's been a senator forever. Uh, we talk about Joe Biden being too old. Uh, Chuck Grassley is 10 years older than him. To his credit, he is one of the best Twitter followers of all the senators because he tweets just some bonkers stuff that is great, great fun, including deer on the highway. But We'll get into that some other time. Assume um, dear dad. Yeah, what do you do? Um, <laughs> Chuck Grassley initially was not going to run again. Then he decided to run again. Is Does he have any danger in this race? Is there any real uh, contest to speak of here? I hate to say this as a good Democrat, but I have to be uh, honest and rank Grassley as a strong favorite. Now, he's not as strong as he was in uh, in the past. He used to win re-election with margins like 70% and ha- attract a lot of crossover Democratic support. But starting with 2010 and even more so in 2016, uh, the state started to polarize more. Uh, Those Democrats have come back home and voted for the Democratic nominees. The problem is the baseline support for Democrats in Iowa has dropped dramatically starting with about the 2010 cycle. So he wins with 62, 65% instead of with 71%, but that's still a win. And just for perspective, Chuck Grassley was first elected to the Senate in 1981. I was born in 1980, and I'll be 42 in May. So he'd been there a little bit. Yeah, he is uh, older. He's been in the Senate since before his main opponent, Abby Finkenauer, was born. So Let's talk about her. Uh, Abby Finkenauer is uh, presumably the Democratic nominee. She's still got to go through the process, but they had the embarrassing uh, situation of Cross not being able to rustle up a few thousand signatures, which is amazing. She's kind of running pretty low-key campaigns. She made a little noise about term limits. What's your read on her? We don't think she'll win, but is she going to be doing anything to elevate herself or the party here? I think the party activists are fairly solid behind uh, behind Finkenauer, though uh, Admiral Michael Franken is also a pretty strong candidate. And there's some party activists who believe he would be a better match in the general election against against Grassley. There's a third candidate, Dr. Glenn Hurst, who's kind of from the Sanders wing of the party. He may draw 10 for 15, 10 or 15 percent in the primary. So he's not much of a factor. Uh, I would say the smart betting money would be thinking hour, but the race isn't really over yet. What do you think the issues will be? Because, again, when you have a race that's probably not in a whole lot of doubt unless something screwy happens, it becomes a messaging sort of thing. What do you see the messaging in Iowa to be from somebody like Chuck Grassley, who can pretty much do anything he wants electorally, but you kind of pay attention to what message they push when all the pressure's off because they tend to go to what they really want to talk about. What do you see from the Republican side and the Democratic side messaging-wise coming out of this race? 
I see probably a lot of party boilerplate. The state has polarized a lot in the last decade. And so it becomes a matter, especially in a midterm, of getting your base out. So there's going to be a lot of discussion. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of Pelosi uh, comparisons. There's going to be a lot of Trump comparisons, things like that. The only real vulnerability that Chuck Grassley has is his age. The problem is Iowa's an old state that's considered really bad manners uh, to say somebody is too old to serve. So Finkenauer is trying to go at it sideways by talking about term limits, which puts her in the odd position of self-term limiting herself were she to win in her mid-40s. And that's the other problem is the term limits aren't particularly popular among Democrats. And you know, when you're the party that believes in government, it's harder to argue for term limits than when you're the party that doesn't believe in government. There's also kind of a near consensus that Republicans don't try to deny very hard that Grassley's not looking at serving out the full term. He's looking at a resignation at some point. And then the two leading candidates to replace him by appointment would be either Pat Grassley, his grandson, who's currently Speaker of the Iowa House, or Governor Kim Reynolds. Is that how you read it? Because a lot of people, when he kind of changed course on that, was like, ah, he this is a succession plan more than an actual plan to serve out the term. Is that how it feels to you? That's kind of how it feels to me. There was a register poll several months ago that had a large percentage of people wanting someone new. But when they're faced with the choice of, okay, that someone new would be a Democrat, then they're likely just to go back to the Republicans. Now, Grassley does have a primary challenge from uh, State Senator Jim Carlin, who's a little bit more Trumpy than Grassley is, but that's not really a very serious challenge. John Deeth out in Iowa. All right, let me ask you this. You're a local level uh, party official. Uh, let's project ahead of time to when we will be talking about Iowa a lot. 2024, I know we got to get through the midterms first, but the way Iowa was, as soon as these midterms are, are over, you're going to start getting people start showing up at events and schools and barbecues and all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, what's your read on 2024? Is I know people want to talk about Joe Biden isn't going to run again, but I think if there's breath in the man's body, he's going to run again. And I also, quite frankly, think, and I'm not a Democrat, you are, you tell me, I think he's the only one that can get a coalition together that they're going to need to win in 2024. Do you see it differently? Do you think Biden's the guy or do you see some other option here? Looking back at 2020, I was a Warren guy uh, and I was very enthusiastic for Senator Warren. But I think in retrospect, Joe Biden was probably the only person who could have won because he was the only person who could attract what I would call the normie moderates who were sick of Trump, but were just not comfortable with somebody like a, a Warren or a Sanders. So I think most of the Democratic activists are working under the assumption that the president is going to run for another term. So the action is going to be on the Republican side. And of course, there's an 800 pound gorilla on the Republican side right now. Will Trump run or won't he run? I think in the end, he probably won't end up running. Either he'll be under some kind of indictment or he'll be in some kind of voluntary exile. My bet has always been the United Arab Emirates because they don't have an extradition treaty with us and he owns property over there. Uh, but obviously, even if he's not a candidate, his stamp of approval is going to be the key issue in the Republican caucus next cycle. Uh, you're going to be looking at people like DeSantis or Haley or Christy Nome from the next state over in uh, South Dakota. 
uh, people like that coming in and trying to be the Trumpiest candidate that's possible. Never count Ted Cruz out. He actually won the Iowa caucuses in 2020 over Trump. And so there was a little bit of uh, Iowa hate from Trump uh, for a few weeks until the Iowa Republican Party leadership got on board with him. And then that all of a sudden vanished. So. Yeah, I think you're being a little wishful about your uh, exile with Donald Trump, but I'll give you that one. But and to be fair, that was before Trump ripped uh, Ted Cruz's electoral soul out and wore it as a hat and made him compliment it over and over again. So that was mm-hmm. a different Ted Cruz than the one we're getting now. Let's just point that out. Uh, OK, let's go there, uh, which it, I know it's way too early, but I, I'll just ask you directly. Let's assume that the Republicans have a great midterm cycle, which historically and cyclically, they should have a good cycle. Uh, if, yeah. if, the, if the Democrat, I think it actually I, I've been telling folks and they kind of give me a little I was like, remember, the Biden of 2024 is not the Biden of 2022 before the midterms happened, because he's going to have what he doesn't have now. He'll have a Republican Congress to run against and never give the GOP you know, a chance to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. But uh, does that feel like, you know, I don't think he's in too bad a shape. I know his approvals are in the 40s, but that's not out of the norm for a midterm cycle. If he gets a Republican Congress to run against, you're at that local level. Is that enough excitement of a Republican controlled Congress to kind of get the vote out? And I don't know if he'll see those record levels again that he got under vote, but you're at that local level. You tell me. Republican Congress, either both houses or at least the House of Representatives, is that enough to drive the vote in 2024 to Biden at your level? I think so. Of course, I'm not from the best perspective in Iowa. I'm in the bluest county in the state, but I can already see the lines long blocks of cars waiting to vote that we had in 2020. People won't people can't wait to get out and vote. Uh, We saw it in uh, 2018 midterms. We saw it in the 2020 presidential. Uh, When the other thing that's going on is people react negatively to vote suppression. When you try to stop somebody from voting, there becomes this attitude of, well, to heck with you, I'm going to make sure I get out and vote. So there'll be, I think, a redoubling of efforts on the Democratic side. One of the things that hurt Democrats in Iowa in 2020 was the decision not to do door-to-door campaigning, which is sort of a requirement in Iowa. Uh, And I understand that decision. I think from a point of view of rhetoric, that was the right decision because we wanted to sell the idea that COVID was serious. We also didn't want our field organizers to be risking their lives in the period before we had vaccines. But now there's been an almost universal consensus that we have to get back on the doors and we have to be talking to voters face-to-face in Iowa. And I uh, I think Iowa Democrats uh, will probably see friendlier faces than they expect. The question is whether it's going to be enough because that Western end of the state is just so red. Yeah. John Deeth, outstanding insight into Iowa. It is an election year, so we'll be checking back in with you later on. I'm sure let folks know where they can follow you. You actually wrote a five piece thing on your own blog, uh, jdeeth at blogspot.com. Make sure you go read that excellent background material, a lot more in depth, but let people know where they can follow you on social media and what you got going on, sir. Yeah, my Twitter handle is just my name, John Deeth, and the blog is a little bit dormant right now, but it's still out there. I did a lot of writing from about 2002 through about uh, 16 or 18. I still keep it up in case I get some thoughts that need more than 280 characters, but uh, you can also get there from johndeeth.com. Fantastic stuff. Appreciate you breaking down the Iowa for us. Uh, You represent your state well, sir, and we appreciate your time. All right. 
Welcome back to Herd Tell. Have you heard about the flooding in Australia? It hasn't been getting a whole lot of worldwide coverage. Of course, Ukraine's going on, lots of other stuff happening. But there has been severe flooding in Australia. This is a uh, damning story out of vice.com. The headline, Charities, shocking. Charities nowhere to be seen. That's a direct quote. As flood victims raise money for themselves, community leaders are responsible for more than 2005 GoFundMe pages as charities like the Red Cross are nowhere to be seen. Remember that Red Cross thing. I'll come back to them in a minute. Flood victims across northern rivers of New South Wales are lashing charities like the Red Cross in waves. They said the charities have failed to respond to their needs in the same way that their governments have. In flood-affected towns, residents are incensed by being left to mobilize recovery funding for themselves. Volunteer leaders and civic leadership roles across the region say that charities have, for the most part, done little to make themselves known in the towns where they have presence and have failed to meet the needs of their communities. Among them is Russ Berry, who prefaced his concerns about the absence of Australia's major charities and the Red Cross in particular, with the fact that he doesn't actually know, quote, all the facts related to their presence in the region. He later told Vice that his not knowing could be symbolic of the issue. People are just confused. They might be around, but we aren't seeing them. It's still just the community doing everything. People don't know where to find them. And I think they just don't seem to be doing enough job of communicating how people can get the grants or what makes them eligible. Um, I'm going to go personal with this. This is, of course, Australia. Red Cross is a national organization. When the West Virginia floods happened in 2016, and I know this intimately and personally because my family, my friends, and the community I grew up in were greatly, greatly affected by these floods. Uh, almost nearly 30 people were killed in these floods. Uh, they called it a 500-year flood. Some people called it more. This It rained so hard, it flooded the basement of my parents' house, the house I grew up in. Uh, they live on top of a mountain. It was raining so hard, the rain came out of the mountain down onto their house and ran right down the steps into the basement of the house, flooded their house. They had a foot of water in their basement. You can imagine the low-lying areas like Rainel, which lays along a river bottom, were just utterly engulfed. Something like 80% of those homes were at least partially submerged underwater. Vast devastation. And the Red Cross openly told people on the ground that they're not even going to bother to come in for a week to 10 days after. But in the meantime, they're running national campaign ads, soaking up all this money for those poor people in Appalachia. I've got a big problem with national organizations like the Red Cross. I know they do some good work. I know they live off reputation. They also have massive amounts of overhead. They're a major corporation. They have executives making vast sums of income. All that overhead means they need to constantly fundraise. The problem is when there was flooding where I'm from, there was a whole lot of let's fundraise the money up front and then we'll come in and do things later. The problem is the people in West Virginia couldn't wait 10 days for them to show up. And frankly, when they did show up after the community had basically been taking care of themselves and most people in the country had poured money and effort and relief stuff into them, and they had done a pretty decent job of managing on their own, made such a shambles of it that the people that had been staying in the facilities, the local people weren't, moved to the Red Cross ones, immediately came back and said, would you please take us back? FEMA's got some blame there too, but that's another story for another day. I would encourage everyone, and again, nothing against the Red Cross except for the very personal issue I have about them screwing over my own community, so you can take this as biased as you want it. They take a lot of money, and they don't seem to show up until after they don't need it. It's like a bank loaning you money when you're no longer in debt. If they're going to fundraise, they need to use the money for what they say they're going to use it for, not for overhead, not for salaries, not for junkets for their corporate partners and all these folks. When people need it, 
They don't want to wait. So I will once again encourage you when there's a natural disaster or when there's a tragedy or when there's anything that people want to fundraise and we want to give money. In America, we are the greatest country in the world to give money to people that need it. Find local resources that are venerable, that can be checked out, that are verifiable. Give them the money. The closer to the tragedy or the natural disaster you can get with the money, churches, civic organizations, school systems, all kinds of things. Give it to those folks as close to the disaster as you possibly can, because that's going to get the money in the hands of the people that know what to do with it. If you're giving it to one of these major national organizations, they're going to get their cut up front first, and then everything else will eventually trickle down. In a lot of cases, it's too late to really help the people who are most desperate in need. I would encourage you again, give the money as close as you can. This is where social media and the power of technology really empower you because you can follow local media. You can talk to those local leaders. You can find out very quickly who's actually doing the work on the ground. And you can ask questions and be informed before you give. More Hertel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donson. You know, we always take the last segment of the show, try to talk about something more uplifting and positive, something nice. I like this story. This is fun. From uh, artnet.com. In 2008, husband and wife art dealers Reed Horth and Kate Barrow-Horth established Robin Ryle Fine Art in Miami, selling works by world-class artists such as Salvador Dali, Robert Indiana, and Joan Miro. After a decade establishing themselves in the city of Miami, the Horths decided they wanted to give back in some way. Both Reed Horth and Kate Barrow-Horth had fond memories of creating artists' children, with Reed calling himself a comic book nerd. And so the couple decided to establish Comic Kids, a nonprofit teaching at-risk kids through comics and cartoons. The organization, which grew during COVID, partners with Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Miami, Girl Scouts, Community Troop, Handy, Branches, and other nonprofits assisting at-risk underserved youth in the community. And there's a little bit of an interview. And I wanted to read this quote to you because I find how they engage kids in this. It goes, before the pandemic, this is uh, Reed talking. We had teaching free art classes by volunteering with nonprofit organizations that were looking for after-school art classes for children. Ironically, Comic Kids received its official nonprofit status not only a month before Florida schools shut down in March of 2020. So being creative people with background in online sales already, we naturally shifted to an online model. Within three months, we were teaching kids in Atlanta, Toronto, New York, and here in Miami via Zoom. We hadn't even considered this type of model pre-pandemic but COVID provided us an opportunity to transition seamlessly into it because of the success we've experienced in the last two years. We've decided to keep Comic Kids a virtual model and have expanded our live drawing classes and created new curricula with various nonprofit partners in Miami and elsewhere. More recently, we branched into teaching live classes in schools during the Children's School Day, which is, by the way, uh, art classes are getting the axe all over the country along with music and other humanity-type study-based things. So something like this that doesn't cost a school district anything other than the uh, audio video equipment with most of them already have is a great bridge since we're cutting all that funding for the traditional art classes. But find that so many kids are art starved that the classes have resonated with other schools as well. If a school classroom is equipped with a smart board and a webcam, we are able to teach kids anywhere in the U.S. or for that matter in the world. Great story, folks that came up with an idea they were going to do a nonprofit and they used the crisis of COVID to turn around and do something really, really great with it. Good for them. Uh, It's called uh, Robin Ryle, R-I-L-E, Fine Art. You can look it up. Art Gallery Network is where this piece comes from. Good for them. 
That'll do it for Herd Tell. Thank you so much for joining us on this Monday. We got a big week coming, a lot of stuff going on in the world, some exciting guests. Uh, we don't do guests of one side or the other. We have everybody on. We have conservatives, progressives, libertarians, whoever else. Uh, you're going to get your thinking challenged on this program because I'm going to have people on that challenge my thinking. I have people on that I don't agree with, and hopefully you don't either. And we're going to do this real radical thing called listen to them. And it doesn't mean we won't push back and have a frank discussion, grown folk talk about certain topics, but we're not going to yell. We're not going to caterwaul. We're going to work it out and we're going to hear each other out because we're all in this together. You can go ahead and miss me with the left wing, right wing thing. Never seen a bird yet fly with just a left wing or just a right wing. We better figure out a way for us to all live together, pushing forward in this thing called life. So until we talk to you again tomorrow on Herd Tell, we hope you are subscribing, whether it's on the YouTube channel or on any of the podcasting platforms. Also, Big Talker Networks, big things coming there. They do live stream on the radio streams. They also got a new app that's being refurbished. Facebook page, if you want to watch on Facebook, the video, great way to share the program. Get that video off the Facebook feed, share it on your Facebook. We'd sure appreciate it. So until we talk to you tomorrow, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll see you tomorrow for more Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.